This is Steve Mahella, and welcome to Mahella of a Chat. on Mahel of a Chat is Elizabeth L. Gray, a principal with the firm McCandlish & Lillard in Fairfax, Virginia. Liz began practicing law in 1996. She's a member of the Bar of the Commonwealth of Virginia and focuses her practice in the areas of estate planning, elder law, special needs planning, guardianships, and the administration of estates. This includes drafting trusts like special needs trusts, pet trusts, trust to minimize income taxes and capital gains, along with wills, powers of attorney, medical powers of attorney, also known as advanced medical directives, and other succession planning documents. She is certified as an elder law attorney by the National Elder Law Foundation and is a member of the Special Needs Alliance, an invitation-only nationwide attorney organization. She is past president and the 2011 recipient of the Outstanding Member Award of the Virginia Chapter of the National Academy of Elder Law Attorneys and is a member of their Invitation-Only Council of Advanced Practitioners. And she's also a former co-chair of three different sections of the Fairfax County Bar Association. Other accolades include AV Preeminent Ranking by Martindale Hubble, a superb ranking on AVVO, listed in Best Lawyers of America since 2012. That's an honor given only to 5% of attorneys. A recipient of the Influential Women of Virginia Class of 2012. A super lawyer in Elder Law for Virginia and Washington, D.C. each year since 2009. One of the top Elder Law Attorneys by Washington Magazine every year since 2009 and listed in Northern Virginia Magazine among the top elder law attorneys in the Northern Virginia area every year since 2011. Most recently, she was named Lawyer of the Year by U.S. World and News Reports Best Lawyers 2015. And now, Liz Gray and I in a Mahel of a Chat. Where would you say you spend most of your time? Estate planning. When you're doing an estate plan and people show up, what are the top things they forgot to think about or what are the big mistakes they make when they walk into your office? Well, the first big mistake is not doing any planning at all. if they're coming into my office and they're gonna do estate planning, then the biggest mistake is oftentimes not thinking through who you are picking as your fiduciary. So a fiduciary is really just somebody that is in charge of somebody else's person or stuff. And they have certain duties and responsibilities, but it is a blanket term for an agent under a power of attorney or an executor under a will 
or a trustee under a trust. And a lot of the families that come in think, well, I've got five kids, I want them all to be co, you know, I don't want them to fight and I want them all to be co agents under my power of attorney, or I want the oldest because he'll get mad if I don't pick that one, or the youngest because she's so sensitive. Um, they don't think about what the real issue is, which it, for the financial power of attorney is, can that person handle the, uh, the finances? Um, are they good with money? Can they balance their own checkbook? If they can't balance their own checkbook, Believe me, they're not going to be able to balance mom or dad's checkbook. And um, if the kids are fighting, um, or if there's one black sheep that causes family drama, then maybe not appointing any of the kids as the fiduciary, but appointing a professional fiduciary instead, somebody that's going to be able to have the strength to do what they need to do if there is any family drama. Wow, <clears throat> that was a lot. So let's talk about one of the things in there, the fiduciary. If someone calls someone and says, I'd like you to be the agent under the power of attorney. I'd like you to be the person who's going to make the medical decisions. I'd like you to be the person who is going to guide my will through probate and work with the professionals there. What are the salient points somebody who's about to be a fiduciary should be paying attention to? What type of an estate it is? Is it a large estate? What are the assets in the estate? What are the family relationships about? What are the goals of this family and this person that is asking you to serve as their fiduciary? Let's turn the spotlight the other way what kind of obligations are they taking on and what is going to be expected of them well they're going to be expected to um, honor the wishes of the person they're acting for so instead of doing what you want doing what that person wants that's asked you to serve a duty of loyalty a duty of confidentiality a duty of um, fiscal responsibility, I would say, um, a duty to substitute in that person's judgment for your own judgment, and um, a duty to safeguard the property. Um, those are the, the main obligations um, that the fiduciary would have to uphold. Sounds a little bit daunting. It can be. It really can be. A lot of people don't think about it. They just uh, appoint, you know, a, a child just because that's the, they only have one child. I'm going to appoint Johnny, even though he's not good with money, and expect him to be able to handle all of this aspect of the finances of, of his or her parents, and sometimes that can't happen. So... Someone says, sure, I'll be the I'll be the executor, executrix. I know in some states it's called the personal representative, but I'm going to be the one that gets the call and is handed the will. And now it's my job. What's my first 
task? As the executor? Yes. The first task basically is to see if you have the original will. <laughs> because you can only probate an original will. A lot of people don't realize that. Um, if you have the original will, you also need a death certificate. And in most jurisdictions, you have to set up an appointment to probate the will with the court. It's usually the city or county in which the individual passed away in. Um, and then you go to court to actually probate the will. A uh, good thing to bring along is a list of what the assets are in the person's estate and who the heirs at law are for this person. So that would be the first step, would be figuring out what the estate consists of and who the beneficiaries are. Where would a fiduciary, where would a executor turn for help? An attorney that handles probate administrations. Um, could be an elder law attorney or a trust and estates attorney. Um, but that, that would be the best bet. Would it make any sense to try to find the attorney who actually drafted the will? Uh, yeah, that would make sense if that attorney is still living and still around. Um, absolutely. Sometimes there are, are some attorneys that name themselves in there as the fiduciary um, or a successor fiduciary. But yeah, finding that, that attorney because that attorney has all of the notes from when he met with the decedent and um, should have all the information about the estate assets and who the beneficiaries are. Mm -hmm. All right, so you gave some great examples about the emotional reasons why they try to come up with, a client tries to come up with, well, let's have um, the children uh, be co trustees, co-executors. I just went through a situation with a client of mine where that proved to be both a blessing and a curse. Because had she picked the wrong one, if forced to pick one, it would have been a disaster. And the other one actually wound up suing the co-trustee. So all's well, it ends well, but what a mess. And of course, additional estate expenses and everything else. So when you have someone who comes in and, and you gently guide them to, are you sure that's who you want? And it comes to pass, maybe they're even childless. Maybe they have no brothers and sisters. What kind of advice can you give them as to find somebody who can fill that role? Well, the advice I would give is um, look in your community. Do you have a CPA that is willing to do it? Um, a trusted friend, a person over in your church or your synagogue or somebody um, that you've uh, worked with professionally in another capacity that you trust. There are also personal money managers that will sometimes act as a fiduciary. Um, there are two that I know of that uh, in the Northern Virginia area that will act as of fiduciary in that um, in that way, um, there are some trust companies that will step in and act as the agent under the power of attorney if they're named as the agent under the trust or the will or some other document. Um, they'll extend it that far. So there are other options out there. Um, 
For the medical piece, I usually tell people that we don't really care how that person is with money. They just need to have a big mouth and not be afraid of doctors because that's the person that's going to be advocating for you. Um, and sometimes asking the doctor if they'd be willing to serve if, if this person doesn't have any family members uh, available to serve in that capacity. There are some attorneys that would serve as a fiduciary in, in both capacities. Well, I can assure you there are no certified financial planners who will. That's true. That's true. <laughs> a lot of your uh, rules don't let you do that. Yes, we are allowed to do it for family, but we are not allowed to do it for our clients. And even before that prohibition was in, I always refused. And I explained to my clients, you need to be able to fire the financial advisor. <laughs> And if the financial advisor is also the trustee, I'm not sure the trustee's going to fire her. So, um, so that's also, you know, good good advice from that standpoint. Okay, so, so now we've established. Okay, um, we are going to use number one son. Uh, we've told all the children before we came in here that Bobby was going to be the one who was going to be the executor and trustee and so on and so forth. So what's the next thing that you really hope your clients have thought about, decided, or done before they sit down with you? I, I don't think that there's much more other than the little detail-y things that I ask clients. You know, would you be against a cremation? Um, do you have any views about end of life and, and pulling the plug? That kind of thing. Um, do you have a, a abhorrence of, of borrowing, allowing your fiduciary to borrow money? Um, so I think that if they've thought through who the fiduciary might be in the financial and medical sense, then I'm pretty happy. Um, I usually send out a questionnaire where they can put all the financial information or, if, better yet, if they're working with a financial planner, the financial planner is in on everything as well and we're collaborating on this family and how to set up an estate plan that works all around. Um, so if they've completed that and they know what their estate consists of, I guess that would be the second step. Is, is do they have an understanding of what their assets, income, and liabilities are? So it's not so much that you're there to take notes and effect something. You guide them through the process. Absolutely. The first meeting is really for me to see if I can work with them and for them to meet me and see if they even like me and, and to see if we can work together and then I usually go over the difference between a trust-based estate plan and a will-based estate plan, because I think that that's a, a big confusion for a lot of people. They don't understand the differences between a will-based estate plan and a trust-based estate plan, so they don't know how to make a choice. Um, once I've described the differences and looked over what their estate consists of, I can usually make a recommendation based on what they have which would be a better match for them. Um, and then we talk about the ancillary documents that we would be doing. And um, if we're doing a trust-based estate plan, how that trust is going to get funded. 
Well, let's back up. <clears throat> what are the key differences between a trust-based estate plan and a will-based estate plan? Well, the main difference right now is probate. So a will goes through probate and a trust does not. Probate is really just the court supervising the distribution of your estate. It is really public in that the will gets published and anybody can look at it. Um, but you do have the court looking over the shoulder of the executor to make sure that the executor is doing what he or she is supposed to do with the estate assets. A trust is really just a contract. Um, I tell people it's a container for your assets. And what you do is you fill up the container with your assets and all of those assets avoid probate. Um, I then describe to my clients how you get assets to your loved one because some assets go directly to the beneficiary. Life insurance, you usually name a beneficiary. It goes directly to the beneficiary. It doesn't have to go through probate and it doesn't have to go through a will. Um, retirement accounts usually have a named beneficiary and because of a lot of the rules regarding retirement accounts, you may not want anybody other than an individual to be the beneficiary of that asset. So some of my clients that only have life insurance and retirement accounts, they may not need a trust-based estate plan and we can get away with doing a will as a safety net to pick up anything that may have failed in going to the person named on the distribution list or uh, for some other reason, um, it can go through probate and, and get to who it's supposed to go to. So when you were saying distribution list, the immediate thing that came to my mind is something as silly as furniture. Would you put furniture in a trust? Absolutely. Absolutely. We do that with an assignment. So it's a blanket assignment of all of my tangible personal property is going to be transferred or assigned to the trust. And then the trustee makes the distributions when the, uh, when the principal passes away. So when the principal passes away, then the um, trustee is re required to abide by the terms of the trust. Lots of times you can do that by putting in a reference to a list of assets. I want my diamond ring to go to my daughter, Phoebe. Um, whatever you want to have happen. And it's really a great way to give you as the client flexibility to change these distributions um, and not have to pay me to do it for you. So if Phoebe makes you upset, you can rip that list up in front of her and say, you get nothing. <laughs> and then do an, another list and give it to somebody else. Good old Schedule A. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and then something along the lines of, if not, if not listed on Schedule A, divide it equally. Yep. Well, you know, I, I have changed my wording on that too. Um, I find that as I learn things, as I uh, get more experience, my wording changes. So for the personal property, I use substantially equal value because I've had the occasion where the kids fight over the value of furniture 
and that you know Jane got the piano and that's worth 2500 and I only got that antique dresser worth 2000 I want $500 from my sister and I, I don't want to see that mm -hmm. um, so I think in substantially equal value makes a little bit more sense so now the let's say you've got the client well let me ask you this at what point is the cost of probate to the point that the cost of drafting a trust you know is there a crossover point is is should that enter into it or is it more what you own and how you want it to pass more governs whether you use a will or a trust well there would be several reasons why I would recommend one versus the other so if you have family members that might be fighting you may want a probate because you want the court looking over the shoulder of the executor and making sure everything is done properly I have an estate right now that is worth about 50 million and the uh, the deceased person wanted it to go through probate because he wanted the court to supervise the distribution of the estate because he was fearful of children fighting. Um, he also has a nice no contest clause in that will, but um, regardless, that's what he wanted. That's a lot of money to go through probate. I'm sure the probate court was very happy with those fees, um, but he had a reason for doing it that way, and that was his choice. Um, the other reason you would do probate is if you don't know who all of the beneficiaries are, um, if you do heirs at law, unknown at present, or something like that, then a lot of people will do the searches for you, and you, it's amazing the phone calls you get from people saying they're related. How enforceable is a no contest clause? Well, first, a no contest clause is a clause in a trust or a will that says that if you guys argue, if you fight about it, if you go to court over this estate, then even if you were right, you get nothing. And those are routinely enforceable in Virginia. And people routinely make mistakes about going forward on something, not realizing the enforceability of this no contest clause. But that's one of the first things I look at when I have somebody come in and say, you know, I think my sibling is stealing all of the money out of the estate and I don't like this accounting and, and could you help me? I want to see the document and look and see if there is a no contest clause. There are ways around that for us lawyers to that, that we can do to help that person, but certainly if they want to fight over something and uh, one of the first things I'm going to tell them is that you've got a no contest clause. You know that if we end up in court, you're going to get nothing. Or some of the no contest clauses say even if you ask questions or you write a letter or you know you can set it up any way that you want um, and that's the same for a trust and a will yes shut up and take my money yes I don't want you fighting 
you've mentioned at times where one piece of furniture is worth X and another piece of furniture is worth X plus 200. And so the first uh, heir wants to be equalized in cash, but then come to find out when we go and actually have it valued, it's a priceless antique. And so it's $100,000, not $2,000 or something. And so to me, it would seem unfair that a no contest clause would keep you from arguing that. But would a tightly written no contest clause keep you from arguing that? Absolutely. And that's what you want in your document if you're the parent. I don't want you fighting over this painting versus this piano or whatever the assets are. I don't want you fighting over these things. Certainly, if there is a question we didn't know what you meant by this clause. That's acceptable to go to court and have a judge interpret the words. But if you're going to argue over the values and who gets what, the no contest clause kicks in and you get nothing. Some people put in there a dollar or something, just, you know, you get a dollar. Um, oh, but that brings up an interesting question, at least to me. I've heard it both ways, but what do you recommend when someone wants to disinherit an obvious heir? I've heard, and maybe there's other ways, but I've heard, don't leave them nothing because they might argue you forgot. Leave them something, the dollar, a hundred dollars, so that everybody knows, well, yeah, they did think of you. Um, they put this minimal amount in to show that this is what they meant, as opposed to, they've, you know, that page is missing. The page that you were going to get is missing. What do you recommend? I think that's a good idea to have some sort of nominal amount in there. I don't always require that. Um, I think that if you put in a good clause saying, I, I am disinheriting this person, I wouldn't put in a reason why you're disinheriting that person because you don't want them to come back and say, well, um, uh, let's say the clause was I am disinheriting my son because he never visited me. Well, he can come back and say, well, I did. When she, right before she was dying, I went and visited mom, so this isn't true. Um, so I would just do a blanket disinheritance clause. Um, if the parent really wants to give them $100 or $1, that's fine. I think that the best thing for us to do as attorneys when somebody wants to disinherit someone is making sure my file has sufficient notes as to why this parent doesn't want this child or uh, beneficiary to inherit anything. Um, so having a letter from the client explaining the reasons why, that's a great idea to make sure that you've got your file well documented that this person thought it through and had legitimate reasons why they wanted to disinherit this person. Do you find clients reluctant to share the reasons? I don't. I, I don't. I don't have very many clients that want to disinherit a child. Oftentimes they just want it equal no matter what happened amongst the children or between the children and mom or children and dad or, or whatever. Um, a lot of people want it to go equal and a lot of children want to see it equal. 
um, I get a lot of that in the special needs planning field where parents want to leave the special needs child more than the other children and I often advise them against that because the kids that aren't getting as much feel like mom didn't love me as much. It's kind of heartbreaking. Um, so I think there's other ways to get more money to that special needs beneficiary, but certainly I like to see things left equally unless there's a good reason not to. And that ends this episode of Mahel of a Chat. Please join us next time when Liz and I discuss special needs and elder law. One of the things would be a discussion about guardianship. Does this special needs person need a guardian appointed while mom and dad are alive? It could be mom and dad or um, what happens when mom and dad are deceased, who's going to step in to protect that special needs person from predators and predators and all that kind of horrible stuff. We'd really appreciate it if you'd share this link with your friends and colleagues and drop us a note with questions and suggestions for future guests. The email to use is steve at stevemahela.com. That's S-T-E-V-E at S-T-E-V-E-M-O-H-Y-L-A dot com. I'd also like to thank Lee, who wrote and performed the theme music, and Kate Sprague, a former colleague of mine who is now at Inside Nova. Kate came up with the name Mahel of a Chat. Until next time. It's Eleva, it's Eleva, Mahel of a Chat. It's Eleva, it's Eleva. Mahalava Chai